when you have an organization full of people that are owning culture and are committed to it, everybody doesn't have to be on every day, you know? And every talk that I give where I'm talking about culture doesn't have to be perfect. What's more important is that it's consistent throughout the organization and it's consistent in your messaging. In 2016, I co-founded a drinkware company called Simple Modern. I was obsessed with the question, what would happen if we built a for-profit company focused on generosity? This podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at how we scaled from a bootstrapped startup to nine figures in annual revenue. We'll share with you the strategies we used, things learned along the way, and how we built a different type of company. This is Scaling for Good. Welcome back to Scaling for Good. As you can tell, I am not Mike Beckham. My name is Brian Porter. I'm the co-founder with Mike of Simple Modern. And on the hot seat, I have Mr. Mike Beckham, the CEO of Simple Modern. Mike, how does it feel to be a guest on your own podcast? Uh, it's surreal, Brian. It's all I ever dreamed it would be. Yeah? Are you, are you nervous to give up the, the host chair? I've, I've intentionally not looked at the questions you're going to ask, so I'm actually kind of excited to see what you want to talk about. Okay. Well, let's dive in. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background prior to Simple Modern and how you got up to the, the launch of Simple Modern? So I have a super atypical um, story of coming into founding the company. And I don't know that any entrepreneur has a typical story, but um, I had a finance undergraduate degree. And when I graduated, uh, I got married literally the weekend uh, I graduated, I, I got married, and my wife was going to be in school for another year finishing up a master's degree in accounting. So uh, I knew that we were still going to be around the Norman area. We went to the University of Oklahoma and was trying to figure out kind of what to do with that year. I thought that I'd probably end up at a place like Dallas doing something in finance. And an opportunity presented itself to uh, do a one-year internship. I'd been involved with this ministry in college, and there was an opportunity to do a one-year internship with them. Uh, and I thought, this, you know, this is great. I love, I love OU's campus. The, the idea of working with college students is attractive, and you know, we're going to be here anyway. This makes a lot of sense. I'll do that. And then a year from now, I'll, I'll go and work and, and use my degree and, and do business. And kind of a funny thing happened along the way that I really enjoyed the using all of my time pouring into the lives of other people more than I would have expected. You know, up until that point, I'd always done pretty well in school, but finance had come very natural to me, more naturally than anything else. And so it just seemed obvious, like this is what I was born to do. Um, and I was caught very off guard by how much I enjoyed ministry. Uh, during that time, I was in charge of raising my salary, um, and I struggled to raise my salary. It was not very much, but I struggled to raise it. Um, but even though my wife and I had no money, she was a full-time student, I was making almost nothing, and working in the nonprofit world, uh, loved that year, loved the experience, and loved that I, I could draw a straight line between how I was using my time and making some kind of an impact in other people's lives. And what basically happened is one year turned into two, which turned into ten. So I've been out of, uh, I've been out of my undergraduate experience for twenty years at this point, and you could basically split that into two halves. The first half was working in the nonprofit world. The second half has been about e-commerce and entrepreneurship, uh, is how I would describe it. So in two thousand nine, I was actually leading the ministry for this nonprofit. I have a younger brother who's about three years younger than I am, and he had started doing some internet marketing. This is like the early days of Facebook and Google starting to figure out monetization, uh, and he had done really well in a couple of years running basically like a one-man marketing company, and uh, he contacted me and said, hey, I would love to build a business. Um, would you help me do it? It'd be a great like, you know, kind of side gig, nights and weekends, and ministry is super intangible, like non-quantitative. It's a very different part of your brain. And so for me, it was attractive, the idea that I could, you know, spend a little bit of time using that part of my brain again. And so I said yes, helped him launch a company uh, that grew insanely quickly. And before I knew it, uh, that company had its first million-dollar revenue day. Uh, and I was the oldest person associated with the company. I had a fairly major role, um, and I was supposed to be doing this in like a couple hours a week, but the company had quickly gotten to a scale where that didn't make any sense. So I was kind of working two full-time jobs. Uh, and then we got pregnant with our first kid, and I just realized, like, I can't. I cannot do all of this. Um, 
my wife and I spent a lot of time that year talking to people and asking the question of, you know, what do we do? And what we came to is that we really felt like there was an opportunity to make even more impact in the for-profit world than the nonprofit world. And that led me transitioning full-time into the business world and working with my brother in around 2011. Um, and then in 2015, by the time I got there, I'd worked with my brother for several years. We had done a lot of sales and e-commerce. Uh, we had launched some more businesses. Some had failed. Some had been moderately successful. Had learned a ton, you know, just uh, the the amount of information I'd learned in those years was was really phenomenal. Like, it's one of the great things about startups. But by the time I got to 2015, I realized I either wanted to go back into the nonprofit world or I really wanted to start a company with a, a pretty deliberate and intense focus on mission and culture. And it was right around that time when I was open to the idea of starting something uh, that you and Micah first approached me and said, hey, we would love to start something if you would be interested. And it was it was one of those situations where the timing was just perfect, where, where I was at, um, I think in my career and in my thought process really lined up with the fact that uh, there were a couple other people that I'd worked with that I really enjoyed uh, that wanted to build something. And that became the very the very early days of Simple Modern. I appreciate you sharing um, th those two different halves of your career in the for-profit and nonprofit world. Um, I I'd like to double click on just how you felt your purpose transitioning to the for-profit world. What, what was it like on a day-to-day -day basis of, of you're in... Excel, you're in meetings, you're doing all these things that aren't directly impacting people's lives. What, what did that feel like to make that transition? So for me, it was, it was challenging to make the transition because I really enjoyed my time in the nonprofit world. I didn't leave because I was burned out or I was bored. Um, I left because I kind of felt like I was kind of called out and um, I, I left working with teammates that I really enjoyed. So it was it was a challenging transition. And I think the point that you're making is a really good one. One of the things that was nice about working in the nonprofit world is that it's a lot easier to say, okay, I did these things and hopefully these are the ways it impacted and improved the lives of other people. When you're in a business context, you're trying to tie your activities to how you're helping the business to be more profitable a lot of the time. And uh, that was less motivating for me. So one of the things was, my wife and I, when we decided to transition into the business world, is that we really had a vision towards giving, that we wanted to create something like a foundation where we could give significantly. And that helped me. It helped me to think about profit and the goal of the day differently, that if I do my job with excellence and if I'm able to produce profit, then there are things that that makes possible. There's ways that I can impact and improve the lives of other people. But I had to kind of deconstruct something that uh, a hang up I had, which, and I think this is true for a lot of people, there is this almost negative connotation sometimes around the word profit, that profit means greedy, profit means, you know, charging excessive prices. And it was the beginning of a, I would say, a multi-year process of me realizing that profit can be really redemptive and pos profit is positive. Profit is its capacity and margin and potential to invest in things, to make a difference in people's lives. So that was probably the first thing I, I had to really go through is understanding that pursuing profit can have a very purposeful, you can really draw a line from that to impacting people's lives as long as you have uh, an idea of how you're going to use it. I think if if the extent of your idea of how you're going to use profit is I'm, I'm going to drive a nicer car, I think it's, at least for somebody wired like me, it, it can run out of motivation pretty quickly. But when you think, hey, by being successful at my job, by producing profit, um, I can we can hire more people, we can build bigger things, we can be more creative, we can give more resources towards things that matter, that started to be motivating. Um, and I also started to realize that, hey, like the way that I work with others and the way that I impact the people that I work with every day, like that is definitely part of how I impact the lives of other people as well. And it's easy, it's, you know, it's easy to show up to the job and, and not think about those things. But I think as I started to realize that, it really helped with my motivation and, and kind of mission mindset. That makes sense. And I, I think along those lines, something that's been helpful for me is that 
in general, healthy things produce profit, like healthy plants produce fruit. Um, relationships, when they're healthy, they, they produce things that are good. It's like a natural byproduct of, of something that's healthy. I think where we tend to get tripped up is what happens with that profit. And it typically gets spent on the, you know, selfishly on the people who are able to, to control those resources. So to me, that's a, a helpful distinction. So you, you talked about your, your background all the way up into the launch of Simple Modern. Can you walk me through um, the, the first year? So we're talking about 2015, whenever we decided to, to launch this thing. Um, what's, so, and you were still working in a, a significant role at the company that, uh, yeah, that we were brother. at. So what, what was it like for you balancing your roles at your current company, in starting this new thing called Simple Modern? So I think we got the full startup experience across a number of different, you know, uh, areas. One is we were bootstrapped, which meant that I'm, uh, I invested some of my own money and that uh, we, we began the process with less money than we wished we had. And that pretty much was the first few years. Like we very much experienced the feeling financially stretched, I think, all throughout that first period. Um, but I also felt the stretch of time because like you said, because we were bootstrapped, we, we didn't want to be paying salaries right off the bat. And, uh, so it's like, we weren't really ready to quit our day jobs and we were trying to kind of figure out, Hey, how do we get something off the ground? And so what that practically looked like was there was a lot of just working at night. And, you know, in some ways the company started as a fully remote company, which is just out of necessity, right? That like, there is no office, nobody, you know, is is able to work on this during normal hours. And so it, ironically, that was that period that we were starting the company, we had just had my, my second child. And, you know, when you have your first child, you go through the experience of the first year and you don't really know, is this an easy or a hard kid? You just know that was my experience. And then the second one helps you to understand whether the first one was easy or hard. And what our second child taught us is that we, our first child had been a very easy child <laughs> uh, because she was not. Our second was not. And she did not like sleeping and she was very rarely quiet and not, you know, fussing about something. Uh, and to the point that like that whole first year I had to take her upstairs. We had an upstairs kind of bonus room and I would take my daughter up there and sleep with her upstairs because my wife couldn't sleep. You know, like after you have kids, your, your senses get heightened and stuff to take care of your kids. My wife couldn't even sleep because of how much noise she'd make. So, uh, there was not a lot of sleep that year. There was a lot of working during off hours and a lot of feeling stretched, um, and feeling like we had, I had a lot on my plate, but there was also a lot of excitement that we were really going for it. And, you know, we've, we've talked about this, but I got very excited about the idea that we had a really clear sense of culture and the type of company we wanted to build from the get go, even if we didn't know what we wanted to sell, how we, how it was all going to work. Um, and so I, I think one of the other things I learned during that early period is that, I, I am like a car that was born without, you know, a second, third and fourth gear. You know, it's almost like I just kind of, I, I went into the process thinking like, oh, we could build a nice small business and not realizing like, that's just not the way that my brain thinks. Like I like to scale things and I like to, to be a pioneer and I like to grow things. And so once we got initial traction it was this the, the beginning of this push to like, hey, how can we continue to scale this thing and grow it? So we launched on the, the marketplace and we started to get some sales. But even as early as January or February um, of 2016, we were starting to kick around ideas like licensed drinkware and how could we break into that? Um, and we, I was starting to talk to mass retailers. Like I got a meeting with Walmart somehow in before I, maybe before we'd even sold a water bottle on Amazon, which in retrospect is kind of an absurd idea. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Wasn't there a pitch to Sam's club without any samples of what Maybe there was one sample that we had made of yes. what we were selling them. Well, it's it's one of the pivotal kind of moments in the company's history is um, a program that we did with Sam's Club. So the backstory was I looked around at the industry and realized that um, – 
premium insulated drinkware was just becoming a thing. And this is back when, you know, people were first being introduced to the idea, uh, which is really pretty magical the first time you experience it. You're like, okay, wait, so I put ice in there and then the next day it's still there. Like, how is, yeah, how is that possible? How is this magic trick possible? Um, but when I looked at the licensing world, I realized like most of it was not very nice stuff, you know, and it, it was really expensive and it wasn't very high quality. And I thought, what if we made affordable, really high quality licensed drinkware? So um, using this idea, I approached the University of Oklahoma and gradually uh, wore them down, I think, and, and is probably the best way to put it, uh, to give me what was called a local license, which is the ability um, to just do, represent one university. So I got, the, I, I got the right to make premium insulated drinkware for the uh, University of Oklahoma that had University of Oklahoma logo on it. Um, and with that proof of concept, I was somehow able to get a meeting with a buyer at Sam's Club. So it's the way that mass retailers are organized, they all have buyers over different divisions. And the way Sam's Club was organized at the time, their sports and outdoors category and their licensing category uh, was run by the same person. And this is when Yeti is just first starting to take off and the, the, the Rambler 30 ounce was exceptionally popular. And uh, I did not know this at the time, but Sam's Club had just dropped a two-pack program where I think they were selling two 30-ounce tumblers for $20 or $30 or something. And they were literally selling through a pallet of these in a day, which if you know, if you know anything about um, Sam's Club or Costco, that's just an absurd amount of stuff to be selling. And so the moment that I went in and sat down with this buyer, I could have never planned it, but she was the most ready to hear the pitch that I had um, that anybody would ever be. And at the time, when I sat down for that meeting, we had probably sold less than a thousand water bottles in the history of the company. So like, I, I'm not being modest when I say that we, there was nothing impressive about, like I was trying to find a way to credibly pitch um, that we could do something big and that we were going to be somebody and we had just sold just almost nothing. But the timing was right. The idea was right and the timing was right. And that buyer, as a result of that meeting, ended up placing a couple of orders that, that totaled almost $10 million uh, across them. Uh, one was for water bottles and one was for licensed tumblers. And she asked me during the meeting, she said, you know, can you do what you've done with OU with other schools? And, and I was very honest, like, I don't have the right to do that. But I think with your order, I might have a chance to be able to do it. That's the most amazing part of the story It's to me. unbelievable. So we didn't have any of the license. We, we didn't even have the right to sell what we sold. <laughs> but she said, if you can get it, I will write this big order. And I said, if you will write the big order, I think I can get it. And so anyway, she writes this massive order. And the, you know, the next day, I get on the phone and I call... Uh, the, the, it was called CLC at, at that point, but basically the organization that most of the major universities were using to help them with licensing. And I said, I'd love to set up a meeting. You know, I've, I have a local license with OU. Uh, I have a major order and, and I'd love to talk about getting nationally licensed in this category. And the person I talked to at the time has become a friend, uh, but I didn't know her at all at that point. She said, you know, listen, I, you sound like a nice guy. I, I don't want to burst your bubble, but there is just zero chance this is happening. And I, I said, well, will you just at least set up the meeting? And she said, I, I can set up the meeting. Um, nobody important is going to come to it because the answer is going to be no, but I'll, I'll set up the meeting. Just don't get your hopes up. The answer is going to be no. Um, and then a couple of days later, I saw that the meeting invite had been updated and one of the, the higher-ups in the organization had been added. So I thought, well, that's a good sign. At least I'm going to get told no by somebody who matters. And uh, the meeting happened at the end of August. So I, I spent, you know, about a month preparing for this meeting. I love presentations. I love the pressure. I love, you know, big sales environments. That was actually something I didn't know coming into the company, how much I would love sales. And so got into this meeting and, you know, pitched my face off that like, this is going to be awesome. And um, at the end, they said, you know what? The buyer called us yesterday, walked us through the order they're prepared to make. You are the 16th company that has come in here this year that wanted to get licensed in drinkware. And we've told 
all of them know up top of this point, and we're going to recommend you for approval to all these universities. And, you know, obviously one of the best feelings of my life, the number of things that had to go right to set that up. Um, and I talk about this sometimes, like, I'd like to think we're smart. I'd like to think we've had good strategy and we've worked hard, but there's also been a really significant element of just good timing and good fortune that you can't even plan for. Uh, and that was one of those examples. But them giving us approval now, even as a bootstrapped company, we had visibility. Like we've got some major orders. We have some major revenue, hopefully some major, some decent profit that's going to come out of that. And we can actually start thinking about people going full time on salary. We can actually think about building the team. It wasn't just the the initial uh, four of us. And so it was a foundational moment for the company. Um, and I think that it, it was just kind of like a, a turning point where we realized, oh, wow, this could be something a lot bigger than maybe, you know, a little side company that could support three of us. Like this could be, this could be something big. Yeah. I think that story <clears throat> is um, out of all the startup stories that I've heard, um, like the most startup-y story. It's like you're, you're creating uh, this massive program out of nothing. We don't have the product. We don't have the licenses. We're essentially leveraging something we don't have to get so something else we don't have. It's the definition <laughs> of kind of, to some extent, you know, sales is fake it until you can make it. And, you know, hopefully you're never misleading anybody, but you're always having to ever get to that next level. You have to convince somebody you can get there. One of the, the my favorite parts of that story that I didn't even tell when I was trying to convince OU to give us a local license, um, I just could not get them to meet with me. I mean, I couldn't even get the university I graduated from that I taught, you know, I, I did some adjunct teaching at. I couldn't get them to give me the time of day. So, like, it shows you how absurd the idea was that I was going to get this, you know, national organization to get all these universities on board. Well, I finally get a meeting with the University of Oklahoma and I'm like, how do I make us look impressive? We've sold so little stuff. You know, like, what are, what are the things I point to for credibility? And so we had just gotten some product in and put it up on our website. And I thought, you know what? I know exactly what I'm going to do. So with Shopify's app, anytime you have a sale, they have the best push notification sound effect of anybody. It's like this cha-ching. Um, and I thought, I know exactly what I'm going to do. So I, I turned on a bunch of marketing right before I walk into this meeting. And my phone, from the moment I walk in the door, is starting to go cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. And I'm letting it be obnoxious. You know, like I'm acting like I'm just kind of aloof, but I'm letting it be obnoxious for like the first three or four minutes of the meeting. Um, and then I'm like, uh, you know, about four minutes in the meeting, I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I, I need to put my phone on silent. Sorry. Those are sales notifications from our website, you know, and it's like such a, you know, such an act, but I'm just like trying to find out how do I make it look like we're legit and we we've got some momentum when we, we didn't really have a lot. And uh, fortunately they were willing to give me a local license. And as I shared, that ended up turning into being able to get um, a, a lot more licenses. In fact, you could even say like getting that one local license became the foundation that got us all the other colleges, which got us the NBA, which got us Disney, which got us the NFL. And, and now our licensing portfolio has almost everybody in it. But you had to start somewhere. And how do you convince people to have belief in you when you don't have a lot of credibility profile? Yeah. Well, I think that highlights even another concept. Whenever, whenever you're a startup and you have zero momentum, you have to do whatever it takes to create that momentum. And it, it reminds me of the flywheel concept that to get the flywheel started, it takes just an enormous amount of force. Mm -hmm. And it takes things like leveraging things you don't have to get something else and um, push notifications and all that. But once you get the, the flywheel going, all of a sudden you start to feel the tailwinds of actually having real leverage and um, things uh, not not headwinds, but tailwinds. So yeah. there was a, there was a guy years ago on the internet. Uh, this guy one red paperclip, and it was just a fascinating story. He started out with literally one oversized red paperclip, and the whole 
point of his website was I'm going to document trying to barter this into a house ultimately. And he documented the whole process and how he, he ultimately, you know, I think he, he bartered it into some kind of like condemned house or something. Maybe it wasn't condemned, but it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't not like some kind of mansion. But anyway, the process that he used was fascinating. And to some extent, that's what you're doing when you're a startup company is you don't have a credibility profile. You don't have sales. You don't have a team. You don't have any of this stuff. And how can you make key trades and how can you build that profile over time? And then you look up one day and you realize, just like with a flywheel, it used to feel like to get the business to move an inch takes a thousand pounds of force. You know, just to get OU to call me back trying to get a local license took 10 phone calls, right? And me like borderline stalking them going to the office in order to get somebody to talk to me. And, and now we have a constant inbound of organizations that want to work with us. We're not having to chase them down. They're, they're coming to us. And this is the beautiful thing about flywheels and how your work can compound over time is that in the early days, it takes a thousand pounds of force to move something an inch. And then you look up one day and you, you give something, you know, one pound of force and it moves a thousand feet and you're just, it's kind of mind blowing. Yeah. Well, I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned. You, you said that your role early on was in sales. You've, you've held the CEO title for the, the entirety of the company since, since we founded it. What has the CEO role looked like in the different phases of the company? How has it changed over time? So in the very early days of any kind of startup, I think you have to be a player. I mean, they're, they're, I'll use an analogy here of player, player coach, coach, and maybe even the level after that is like general manager. And unless you're some kind of a VC-backed company, when, when a company is getting started, you are a player. And some of that's just out of necessity. Like you don't have the resources to hire people, but you also don't even understand how things work yet. And down the line, you're going to be in charge of acquiring talent and developing them and empowering other people. How do you hope to do that if you don't understand how things work? You know, so the very early days, if you're not, you know, carrying the rock, if you're not throwing touchdown passes, then they're not happening. And like really practically, you and I have both experienced this. It's like I've spent thousands of hours probably in Amazon's advertising portal um, you know the insides of Seller Central and setting up a listing on on Amazon or Shopify or whatever, as well as anybody, because we've just done a lot of that. And I think that probably the most unique part of my experience is that I did a lot of player type things in a lot of different areas. So it's like recruiting, I'm out there pitching the company and trying to convince people while also getting into the weeds on our conversion rates on Amazon and how much we're paying per click and our bids while also preparing for mass retail presentations while also thinking about, Hey, how do we start to build a technology infrastructure while also thinking about, you know, what the exchange rate with China is doing to our financials and how do we not run out of liquidity and so it's pretty overwhelming. You wear a lot of different hats. It's all about being a generalist and having to do the work yourself. And as you start to have success, one of the things that success buys you is it buys you the ability to start to hire people, which is very welcome, you know, especially once you've gone any period of time in a, a really quickly growing organization where you're a player but you enter into this new era where, okay, you, you're adding people, but they don't know what to do. They're going to need to be coached before they can really be helpful. And so you actually go into this period where you get even more, you know, you're even more underwater for a little bit where it's like, hey, all the things you were doing before, you need to keep doing them. Plus, you've got eight, five, four people, whatever it is that you're trying to train in a bunch of different areas. And so most of that training is not time you're getting stuff done. That is actually you just teaching. And someday down the line, you're going to see the fruit from that. But short term, it's just more on your plate. And I think there's a couple of real dangers in that stage. One of the biggest dangers is you know how to do things and you've learned how to do them quick because you had to. You had to be efficient and you've gotten pretty good at them. And it can be really easy to just get stuck. And 
okay, I've got this new hire and I'm supposed to be teaching them Amazon advertising, but they're, they're not picking it up very quick and they're screwing stuff up. I'll just do it. I'll just do it. I won't even show this to them. I'll just do it. And you start saying, I'll just do it a bunch. And the problem with that is you are not working towards the growth of the organization at that point. You're becoming kind of a, a bottleneck in and of yourself, even though you don't see it that way, because you're a little bit quicker and a little bit more effective, or maybe a lot quicker and a lot more effective than the people you're trying to train. But you're basically mortgaging the future for the present. And so the big transition point for me there was how do I actually coach and empower people? And so I'd call that the player coach phase where you're, you're still like, it's almost like um, the linebacker. A lot of times like a defense will have a linebacker who is calling out the signals and the shifts for the defense, but he also has responsibilities. Like he's still got to fill that gap, but he's also trying to help make sure that the other linebackers and the safeties are lined up correctly. And people know, you know, what audible they're running based on the formation or whatever. So you're doing both simultaneously and, and it's really challenging. Yeah. I, I think one thing that I would, I would add there, I, I've, I've felt that a lot, especially recently. I think, you're exactly right. It's easier to do it yourself. It's harder to train someone to do something. But I think the other side of it too is, especially as founders, like a lot of the the things that we did early on were kind of our baby. And, you know, there, there are probably better and worse ways to do things. But um, I tend to think the ways that I do them are, are the best, whether that's true or not, is it's probably not right. It, it can be hard to give up like that control to somebody else whenever you've been doing it the whole time. I've, I've at least found that is, is a, something that makes it tough to, to give up responsibilities. Absolutely. I mean, a really simple example of this is when you've built a spreadsheet, it feels right and you feel comfortable in it. And when somebody else has built it, it feels wrong. Like where, you know, like, no, this isn't how I would format it. The numbers aren't where I want them to be. And, and it's tempting to just be like, I'll just build it, you know, I'll just do it. And cause I, I like the way that I do it and that's comfortable and that's what I'm fast at and that's what I'm good at. Um, but to your point, a lot of that is not even necessarily about better or worse. It's just about comfort and like what you're used to. It is definitely true that when you start to coach people in this player coach phase, that you're intentionally saying, I'm okay with taking a step back. And there was some of that, you know, like we brought on people and the people we brought on were exceptional. I think, you know, we'll have a lot of them on this podcast. And when you talk with them, you're like, these are really impressive people. But most of the people we hired had never done anything like this before. Your team's a great example. I don't think a single one of your team had done anything in e-commerce before we brought them in. And so there was a lot of coaching that was going to have to happen. One of the, the frameworks that was the most helpful to me is the way that that coaching works is first, I'm going to do it. You're going to watch. Then after a little bit, I'm going to do it. You're going to help. And we're going to talk about it. And then you're going to do it. I'm going to help. And we're going to talk about it. And then there's a point where you, they can start executing on things when you're not even around, but can ask advice and you can talk about it later. And by the time you get to that fourth step, the next step is actually they're now close to ready to start to teach other people that. They're actually starting to get to competence. They're actually able to build other people out. And that's a massive step. If you can get to it in the organization, because for the first time you have like a light at the end of the tunnel of, hey, here's how I can actually get out of the tactical day to day. Because you really like one of the things that you'll you'll hear, I know I thought this and I've heard you say this as well. When you're in that player coach stage, one of the most common phrases that you'll hear is if I could just get time to think. If I could just have an hour where I could just sit and think, I would be so much more effective, but you don't have an hour to sit and think because you've got so many things that are relying on you to do. And then when you do have hours, you're, you're trying to give that to coaching other people. Yeah. The, the urgent overtakes the important. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when we got to 2019 or 2020 was when I think for the first time I really started to feel like I was exclusively a coach. And that there was less and less in the business that really required me to execute on it. There, there were occasional things, like I would still go to some sales meetings 
And there'd be occasionally things with e-commerce, but it wasn't like I had to be involved. It was more like I could lend a hand. Um, and most of my time really became coaching and developing the leaders uh, and helping them to be effective. So most of the people I was coaching were still in the player coach phase, but I was in the coach phase. And this coincided with COVID where we went fully remote for, an, I don't know what it was, a nine or 12 month period. It was an extended period. And I learned firsthand what the danger is when you go to the coach level, which is that up until that point, you've been doing so much executing. And the, at the end of the day, when you're kind of mentally going through, you know, you talked about drawing straight lines from what I did and what it accomplished. You know, you, you've, you get in the habit at the end of the day to be like, what did I do and, and what, did, what did it accomplish? Well, when you're a player, that's really easy. I did A and this got done and I crossed off my list and check. When you're a player coach, there's still plenty of that. And you, you can even see some development in people. It's more intangible. It's mostly still that you're kind of making plays while you're coaching people. When you go to the coach level, it's very difficult because really what you're doing is talking to people all day and you're not directly responsible for anything. And it's very easy to be like, I don't know, what did I accomplish today? So we went into a fully remote environment with COVID and I was kind of fully a coach for the first time. And Heather would ask me at the end of days, you know, how was your day? And I, I would say like, I don't know. I mean, I had a lot of conversations. I, I hope that I'm being helpful, but I'm not sure how much that's translating to actually helping the company do well. Um, so it, it, it was a struggle for sure when I initially transitioned. And from talking to other leaders, other CEOs, I've heard very similar stories. Um, and then, you know, as I mentioned, there's probably a level beyond that, which you could call like general manager, where you're not even really thinking as much about the how the operations are going. You're starting to think more about do we have the right people on the bus and it's about talent acquisition and it's you're you're kind of standing over the organization and thinking about the people in the organization. And that might even be the role that I'm in now where uh, I'll occasionally get pulled into operational decisions or I'll occasionally have an opinion. But um, it's also like if I'm on vacation, I don't need to take my laptop and nobody's calling me. Nobody's saying, hey, we had this issue come up. You know, how do you want to handle that? Like, uh, that's not my role in the company anymore. And there's people, because we've been deliberate about hiring well and empowering people, there's a lot of other people that feel like they can make those decisions. Um, so I'm able to focus higher level on, you know, is our culture where we want it to be? Where are we going in the future? Are we getting the right people in the organization? Those kind of questions. Today's episode is brought to you by Encore Fulfillment. Years ago, when we were getting our first water bottles in, we needed to find a partner to help us to fulfill them to customers. We knew nothing about the fulfillment process. We were all new to running a D2C website where we handled the fulfillment, and we were looking for somebody to help us do it with professionalism and give customers a great experience. That's when we met Encore Fulfillment. Based out of Oklahoma City, Encore has been a key partner as we have grown the brand from selling just a few units a week to now hundreds of thousands of units weekly. They've handled fulfillment needs not just for our website, but can also do mass PO fulfillment and other important logistical things that we need as we grow. I've really enjoyed working with the leadership of Encore and the way that they have built their business around us as a true partner. I know that they would be a great solution for your growing e-commerce business as well. That's why it's easy to advocate for Encore Fulfillment, today's sponsor. Fast forward to today. Yeah. Um, we have about 100 employees. It's, it's a different world than uh, for sure. whenever we started off, for sure. And it, it feels very different than any other year that I've experienced, just in terms of the things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, we're, we're in a, a ton of mass retail, our D2C is growing. Uh, I'm, I'm curious from your, your vantage point, what is the biggest risk to the company as we sit today? Well, when you look at other organizations and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this in the last two or three years, and maybe this is some of what comes from having the time to be a coach, be a, you know, general manager or whatever, is that you're, you're able to kind of abstract and just kind of poke your head up and look around, is that 
culture is one of those things which compounds over time. Like it's always happening and it's always being formed. A lot of it's it's in the kind of important but not urgent bucket, like you said. It's one of those places where it's easy to cut corners, especially when things are stressful and uh, when there's deadlines, uh, you know, and payrolls to make. But I'm pretty convinced that the importance of culture compounds the bigger you get, that the larger you are, the more that um, culture becomes your undoing if you haven't been deliberate and intentional with how you've built it or if the people that you, the team that you've built isn't aligned on culture and you have a lot of different disparate subcultures that have kind of formed within your organization. Um, and, and probably all of us have experience with that where we've been in a situation where it's like, man, the way that group of people and this other group of people in the same university, in the same company, they, they just like on different planets in terms of what it's like to interact with them. Um, that those are the type of things that really become problematic as you scale. Like a, an easy way to think about this is culture is your foundation. And if your foundation is really well built, then when there's a storm or there's an earthquake, that foundation is going to be able to protect and keep your house safe. If you have cracks in that foundation, the more stories you build on that foundation, the bigger the house gets and the more pressure you're putting on that. And when really difficult things happen, those tiny cracks can become big fissures and, and can take the house down. So what I've been excited by is that I think I'm, I've seen how the investments and the deliberateness we've made when it comes in regards to culture have mattered more today than ever before. And it's, it's similar to the flywheel concept. It's like early on, you're doing all these things and you're trying to be deliberate, but you still got to pay the bills and you got to make sales. And it's like, how much is culture really driving the organization? And then at some point you get to a scale where you realize, well, culture's everything when it comes to our future success. So when you see companies that have had a period of unsustained success, uh, almost always there's a combination of some of these things. Key people leaving, selfishness, uh, competition that's inward instead of outward, entitlement, um, me first attitude, like what's best for me, not, not what's best for we, and that these become systemic in, in organizations and, and they'll take them down. Or hubris is another one that we've talked about. So interestingly, one of the things that we do as a company, one of the ways that we are trying to be deliberate about culture is we'll have every month we have what we call growth week where we focus exclusively on the future and how are we setting ourselves up for future success. And on Thursday of that week, we'll get the entire company together for a nice lunch somewhere. And I usually will talk about a topic that's kind of on my mind. And the most recent one we did, the topic was humility. Uh, humility is one of the core values of the company. And really, when we talk about humility, what we mean is just having an accurate self-view, being able to be self-aware enough that we look at ourselves and we have a good concept of self. And the point that I made to the company was really straightforward, that we've passed a lot of the challenges that come with being a startup. But the next challenge is, can we endure in being the things that we have been? And can we manage success well? Uh, and sadly, there's a lot of organizations that are successful in getting to success and they're unsuccessful in maintaining it and in maintaining the character and the drive and the things that got them there. And so my, my, you know, my message to the company was that humility is going to be a huge part of that answer for us. That if we continue to not just say we value this, like it's one thing for it to be on your values, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you really are living it out. But if we're really living out humility in the way that we conduct the business, that we don't feel better than, we don't feel superior, we don't feel like, you know, we deserve to continue to have the success just because we had it in the past, then, uh, and we keep doing what we've been doing, then I think the future's really bright. But we should at least be aware that it's a danger. You know, Pat Riley described this as the disease of me that can set in when organizations are successful. And so we need to be deliberate in thinking about it. The thing that I really like about that is I I see a lot of other organizations being reactive when it comes to culture, addressing 
maybe maybe someone being a bad actor in, in terms of an employee. Um, right. But being intentional and being proactive about talking about our values is really a way to get everyone aligned on, you know, what what is the way that we need to be treating each other? I, I think there's a general alignment, but there can tend to be drift over time. And wh- whenever we talk about things like humility and growth mindset and generosity, it just really focuses the team on um, rowing at the same in the same direction, and um, it, it prevents more damaging like reactive conversations from happening, which is where I think there starts to be. You're, you're kind of like patching up more cracks yeah. at, at that point well, in a, the great, foundation. a great parallel to that is, you know, whether you're talking about your car or your body, preventative maintenance is so much more effective than firefighting. You know, like if you look at any of the research about longevity and how do you live a longer life, how do you get a, a longer health span, which is not just how long you live, but how long, you know, your body feels good and you're able to enjoy living – the answer is not by waiting until some, you know, your cholesterol number spikes into the red or where your A1C goes off the chart, but by doing things now where you're proactively doing things that are preventative maintenance and, you know, you're exercising and, um, you know, you're getting that, that tune up on your car, you're getting the oil change, not waiting until the, you know, some kind of smoke starts coming out of the engine. But often that's the way that we, I've seen, organizations approach culture is that it's fine unless it's on fire is basically the thought process that you'll see sometimes. And that's, that's not true. Your culture is always evolving and drifting one way or another. And if you're not being intentional, then you're kind of subject to chance and how that drifts and who the particular people are in your organization that are the most influential and in driving culture. So instead it's Hey, be deliberate about it and be putting the work in, the consistent work in uh, every week so that you don't look up one day and say, man, why do we have, you know, 10% of our team disgruntled? Why did, why did we have 15% turnover last year? You know, that seems to come out of nowhere because those things don't just come out of left field. They're gradual in nature. And I, I think that we've been able to be deliberate in this area. I, you know, I, I'm very intentional about saying we are not perfect in this area. And I don't think, I, I wouldn't want to hold up the company like we've figured this out. The The message that I want to say is we've at least been intentional in this area. We've at least known here's where we're aiming for and we're going to tell everybody we're aiming for. We're going to be really clear with everybody in the company. This is what we want to be. We're going to be accountable for that. So one of the things that I'll tell people, you know, when we hire a new employee, I will sit down with them and walk through our mission, vision, values. And one of the things that I communicate is I want a culture that is so strong where if I violated it, people wouldn't follow me. Doesn't matter that I'm the biggest shareholder. It doesn't matter I'm a co-founder. It doesn't matter that I'm CEO. That if I'm not willing to follow the culture, I should not be followed. I lose the respect and the imperative of leadership and that people would go a different direction. That's what strong culture looks like. And that's what you're trying to create. So that's not about you know us having it all figured it out. It's more about being deliberate and intentional and being clear with everybody about who you're trying to be. The, the great thing about culture also is I have days that I wake up where I'm not my best self. Like there are probably days I wake up where, you know, I'm inspiring and people are fired up to lead me. And there are days where I am not that guy, just like anybody else. But other people in the organization might be having a good day when I'm having a bad day. And I show up and even though I'm having a day where I want to be selfish and I want to be self-interested and I don't want to strive for excellence or whatever else... And then I bump into you and you're fired up about, you know, an unlock and how your team has really reached a new level in some area. And you are at that same time embodying the culture and that rubs off on me. And and that when you have an organization full of people that are owning culture and are committed to it, everybody doesn't have to be on every day. You know, and every talk that I give where I'm talking about culture doesn't have to be perfect. What's more important is that it's consistent throughout the organization and it's consistent in your messaging. Yeah. And I, I think another element of, of that that I appreciate is that the leadership should be um, willing to, to listen and to 
when when someone comes to us yeah. with you know maybe an example of a way that we violated the culture which is bound to happen that we're open to receiving the feedback from you know an individual where the the authority structure may not say that we have to listen to them it's important that leaders do receive that feedback and it's something that I see you do and and that I I see all of the the leaders within the company doing which I think is a key component of of having a healthy culture because it's just a matter of time like you said before we we end up um saying something doing something that that we don't you know desire to do or you know culturally we wouldn't want to do so yeah well it's a killer of culture when there's different rules for different people and when there's a perception and sometimes that's oh well so and so gets you know a special pass because they're really they're really good at sales so we just kind of put up with the fact that they're a jerk you know and short with people um or you know so and so's you know not doesn't really follow the culture but you know they're they're Mike's friend from college, so I guess we got to put up with it, or they're the, the owner's son, so, you know, whatever. And that's one of the telltale signs of unhealthy culture. I think the point that you made is a really good one, which is as you lead a growing number of people, it is actually harder and harder to get upward feedback because people, you know, you're leading people whose jobs depend upon you. And people want you to have a positive impression of them. One of the more impactful things I ever read was it was from a CEO and he was just making the point that you get everyone's best self. Like your impression of people is based on the interactions that you're having, but everybody wants to bring their best self to their interactions with you. And so even though that's going to be your perception of them, that's not necessarily consistent with the perception that everybody else has Uh, in the same way, like, People are going to give you their most positive foot forward, and often they're not going to share the hard feedback with you, especially if you're a leader who is resistant to that. So one of, I think probably the, I've talked about this before, but one of the bigger decisions I made in life um, in college, uh, you know, I had a major spiritual turning point in college, and I made a fundamental decision, which was up until that point, if you came to me with critical feedback, it was kind of like a court of law. Like I am innocent until proven guilty, unless you can beyond a shadow of a doubt, you can show me that I, you know, screwed up in this area. Like I am going to debate with you and I'm going to fight you tooth and nail on this. And what changed is I, I went from a default of innocent until proven guilty to if somebody's sharing this feedback with me, I'm going to take the assumption that they're right unless, it, you know, they're proven wrong. And what that did is it dramatically changed my initial posture. When you bring something to me, you know, we had a conversation like this a month ago where you brought something that somebody in the organization said. Uh, I'd used a phrase, I think, in an all-hands meeting. Not a single other person in the organization brought it up, but somebody brought it up to you and how it made them feel. And you brought it up to me. And it was, you know, even then, you know, what, what I want to do is I want to be like, well, nobody else had a problem and this isn't a big deal, you know, and you want to invalidate it because you want to feel better about yourself. But it was very helpful that you brought that up. And for me as a leader in how I talk to the team and how I communicate, I needed to hear the feedback. Even if it was one person, it's still a real experience of somebody on our team and I need access to that feedback. And that person's never gonna bring it directly to me. They're not gonna, you know, they're not gonna have a one-on-one conversation with the CEO where they're they're giving critical feedback about a phrase that you used. And so having an organization that's that has feedback is critical because that breeds self-awareness and that breeds growth. But it starts with being willing to receive that feedback. All this goes back to what you asked initially, which is it's very easy to start being in scoreboard mentality when you're successful. Like somebody brings critical feedback. It's like, hey, scoreboard, scoreboard. We're making money. We're growing. Obviously, I'm doing a good job. I don't have to listen to it. And this is one of like our worst instincts. You know, just because the football team loses doesn't mean the coach coached a bad game. And just because they won doesn't mean he was doing a great job. And we can too often, we can just say, well, the results show that I did great, even though there's a lot of critical feedback out there and I can ignore it. Or sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes people are telling you, hey, you're doing your best, but we feel like we're losing because we're not, you know, the sales aren't there. We're not hitting the metrics. 
So some of really strong leadership is actually disconnecting those things and saying, what are the things that, that really help me to understand how I'm doing as a leader? Um, and, and am I listening to those? Yeah. It, it's very much a, a process versus re- results orientation. Yeah. And definitely the, pro- the, the results of a lot of circumstances are not fully in, in your control, but the process is, um, that's, that, that's great. Uh, I wanted to, to go back to um, you you talking about being open to feedback and basically assuming people are right whenever they bring you feedback. I think that's something that stands out to me about you. Um, one other thing that really uh, stands out about just who you've decided to be or who you are is how much you believe in people. Mm-hmm. Um, at your 40th birthday, I, I told you that... Um, I, I think that you have shown belief in me more than anyone that I know has, and, and including myself. Like you've you've mm-hmm. believed in me more than I've believed in myself, and in certain circumstances, and that's really empowering. What has led to you um, having that mentality or having that yeah um, that trait? I, I think it's a really good question, and. I think some of it is the the same skills that make you make me future oriented and kind of pioneering also probably tie in with this where I can picture what hasn't happened yet. I can look out on the horizon and see what could be. And I've kind of learned that that can cut both ways and that you have to kind of teach yourself and discipline yourself to use it in the positive way. One way that can play out is like I can see a future and we're not there, and I experience frustration, sometimes even anger that we're not there, and that spills out onto people and my perceived shortcomings of their theirs why we haven't gotten there. Guys, we should be at this sales number. I, I can see it in my head, and we're not there, and Brian, why aren't we going faster on this project, you know, whatever. And we've all, we've actually all experienced leaders like that, where the, when the gap between what is and what could be frustrates them and it leads to finger pointing, it leads to blame. But the other way it can go is that I can use that gift to say, I can see the best in who people could become. And I get really excited by that and really motivated by that. And I want to help them get there. And I think one of the big emotional like developments for me as a leader, especially in the business world, is when I stopped getting most excited about getting to revenue goals and I started getting more excited about helping the people that I lead get to places and realizing that if I did a good job of helping them get to places, the financial results would take care of themselves. If I can help the people I lead become the best version of themselves and unlock what they're capable of, then I can live with the results, whatever they are. Like I can't control COVID. I can't control the economy, you know, or what our competitors are going to do. I can lose a lot of sleep thinking about those things or trying to, but I can't control those things. But I can definitely control the way that I lead and coach and encourage other people. And I want to be the kind of person that in the relationships I have, that people get exactly the sense that you got of like, I believe fully in you. Not only do I believe fully in you, I think you're able to do even more than you think you can do. I'm going to use this ability to peer into the future and I can see a version of you that you can become and I want to help you become that is amazing. And so you can cast, I can cast vision for that to others of like, hey, here's all your giftings I see and here's where I think you can get. Um, But then I think it's a combination of giving people both support and challenge to get there. So... um, you know, a great example, I'll, I'll use an example from our relationship. Um, I think one of the things I've always said to you is like, I think you can be an even more assertive leader, you know, and I think people want to hear more from you. Uh, you, I tend to be the one that's out in front and you tend to be more quieter behind the scenes, uh, even though you're relationally, you're probably better than I am. You tend to be more behind the scenes. And uh, I would consistently hear feedback from people. We love hearing from Brian And so one of my feedbacks for you has been like, hey, use your voice. People want to hear it. I believe in the the kind of spokesperson you can be, even if it's not your primary gifting or what you want to do most of the time. And I really think a lot of people want to hear from you, and I think you can be great in this. 
And over the last couple of years, I've seen you really grow into that, like whether it's getting active on social media or even with the way that you lead and use your voice internally, I've seen you step into that. And that's really exciting. You know, you asked at the beginning of the interview about like, how do you draw straight lines from what you do during the day in for-profit work and still be motivated by it compared to the nonprofit world. And this is kind of my answer is like, man, I get really excited when it's like my relationship with Brian and the, the, the leadership that I give to Brian, if that helps him to grow as a person and as a leader, um, then man, I feel great about the time I've invested there. And that feels super meaningful because I know that impacts, you know, all the people he leads it, it impacts his family. Um, and so, the way that you provide that support and challenge is you you show people, here's what I think you can become. And you set a high bar. Like, you know, to your point, one of the reasons why I've been told that before, you believe in me more than I believe in myself sometimes, is that you want to set a high bar for people. Like, I think you're capable of even more than you think you are, but it's not just setting a high bar, high challenge. It's also saying, and I'm going to help you get there. Yeah. To the extent that I'm able, you know, like I don't, it's not just saying, Hey, I think you can bench press this much. Good luck. It's saying, I think you can bench press this much and I'm going to be standing there spotting you and I'm going to go to the gym with you and I'm going to help you to be able to get to the point where you can bench press that much. Uh, and I'm going to be a training partner with you in getting to that goal. Uh, and I think that's what strong leadership w- looks like. Yeah. Well, it's, it's been transformation, transformational for me. For sure. And I, I think when I look at the company and look at the success that we've had, the idea of, of bringing in as much talent, talented people as we can to the organization and empowering them and believing in them that they can um, do what it is that they were hired to do and even more. I, I think that that has at, created value beyond what like we could have imagined, mm-hmm. like talented people fully unleashed and supported to do, you know, whatever, whatever it is they're hired to do, um, has really, I think been what's taken us to heights that we, we didn't expect to get to. And I'll just make one point when you're the leader, it can be easy to feel a ton of pressure that you have to have things figured out or you have to know what's next. I mean, that's kind of part of my role is to be like looking out at the horizon and trying to like think in terms of future strategies And one of the things that's really reduced my anxiety in that area is realizing that if I'm building the type of team you're talking about, I don't have to have it all figured out. If you ask me, like, why do I have confidence in the future? The number one reason is because of the team that we've built. You know, I don't know what the economy will do. I don't know what drinkware will do next. And to some extent, I don't need to know because I know I'm going to be doing it with a team of great, talented people that are driven and that we're going to find the best path forward, whatever that is. So I don't have to know everything about our next steps and I don't have to have it all mapped out to 2030 um, because I've got the right team I'm working with. So at, at this point in the company, um, you don't have to keep doing this if you don't want to. Right. What keeps you engaged in the company and wanting to invest your your time here? So it's a great question that I, I've, I've been asked more and more frequently because I think that the model we've kind of put out there is like, yeah, you go and you start a business to make a bunch of money so that you can go do whatever you want. And, and I think I would start with life is most enjoyable when you don't live it for yourself. And this is something that in the Western world, especially recently, we've lost. There's this idea that your happiness and your purpose all comes from within and just saying yes to every voice inside of you. But if you look across human history, they knew a truth that we seem to have lost, which is like, no, actually serving other people and being a part of communities and things bigger than yourself is how we're wired to thrive. And so is it shocking that we have more anxiety or, you know, we have the wealthiest country in the history of the world. Like there, you can make a lot of arguments about why uh, we have the dysfunctions that we have, but you can't point to resources, you know, like we have more than anybody's ever had. We live like the kings of every other generation. And yet, you know, whether you're talking about antidepressants or suicide, or overdoses, or, you know, there's just so many misery index things that you see. And I do think a big part of it is that as a culture, we've lost sight 
of how we thrive. We thrive when our lives in large part are part of a community and are poured out in service of things that are bigger than ourselves. The worst thing I could do, I'm convinced, is disconnect and take my ball and go home and buy myself a bunch of toys and just say, what do I feel like doing today, every day, um, on some private island somewhere? Um, Not because there's anything wrong even with private islands, but because it would be bad for me fundamentally and that I wouldn't get to live out the purpose that's possible for my life. Um, You know, some of this is like my nonprofit ministry side. Like, I believe... It's not random chance that people are here. I believe that there is a purpose for people's lives. Uh, And I believe a big part of that purpose is relationships and how we interact with other people. So one of the ways that I think about my time is that as long as I have, you know, days to live, I want to use those impacting the lives of other people and hopefully making a positive impact on the world being in community with people, being challenged to grow as a person in my character and in my intellect. And, you know, there's some balances that some tensions that I've got to work out to do that. Would it, would I see my kids more if I didn't work anymore? Sure. But then I would just, I would be losing the balance that my life needs. And this is kind of a principle that I've learned. Our lives work best when we're holding things in tension, but we don't like holding things in tension, but it's how we do the best is when we are having to balance things. Um, so I continue to be really motivated by the fact that the company is impacting on some level or another tens of millions of people's lives at this point. That uh, I said this a, a while ago to the company. It was the first time that it really became crystallized in my mind. But most company building is really just like building a glorified ATM machine. Like, hey, our goal's profit. And every day we're like, how do we get this thing to spit out more cash? you know, for the owners. And, oh, we could do this. We could add this little dial here, this little biometric sensor over here, whatever. And that what I would like to say that we're doing here is more of a building a microphone where we're using a company in a different way for hopefully a a fuller purpose, which is we're, we're not afraid of generating profit. We talked about that. Profit is great, but not in and of itself. It's great if you have a reason for it and you have a use for it and a way to invest it that actually makes a tangible impact in the world and the lives of other people, then it's fantastic. And I think that we have found some of those, like some of the generosity initiatives, we we get to be a part of bringing clean drinking water to people and, and fighting human trafficking and helping you know underprivileged kids have a quality education, things like that. Like that's really motivating to serve tens of millions of customers and hopefully in some small part what we're about as a company what we're committed to that they get excited about that and that motivates action in in their life but the the success criteria that i've come to for my life and the company has been i just want to make the maximum amount of positive redemptive impact i can and there's no way i'm going to do that by getting out of the game um that being in a role of actively operating the company, actively being in community, having to live with the tensions that come with having a lot on my plate that I think that's the healthiest place for me. Um, and and not only is it like the best purpose, but I, I actually think I'm the happiest, you know, like I'm just, I'm enjoying it. And, and I think that this is probably maybe the most encouraging note I could sound um, that I love this, you know, like I get to work with people that I feel like know me and that I really enjoy. And I get to work on meaningful things and I don't do it for the money. I'd pay money to work this job. I'd pay money to be able to show up to work here. And that, you know, when you build a community and a company, right, I think that's possible. Well, I I love working with you. Um, And I, I, I agree. I think that we want to chase a life of consumption. We think that that's going to be the best for us, but that's really not what makes us happy. It's a life that where we're engaged with other people, where we're growing, where there's conflict, um, there's challenge. That's that's where we tend to, to thrive the most. Mm-hmm. So, Mike, you're off the hot seat now. I I'll, I will give you the host seat back. I appreciate you um, letting me uh, take this time on your podcast. Love love this time together. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's great doing it. Thanks for joining us on Scaling for Good. Yeah.